Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 28, Education. Can we, in fact, put information into a child other than that which his physical level allows it to do? Well, we see that if we confine ourselves to a simple egg and leave it to the protoplasmic level, information is no more than the stimulus of that, and the response is protoplasmic, so that whatever information we put inside it is not analysed out at all, and therefore not insulated. The mental level of that being is that it knows the stimulus quality and form, but it cannot separate it out from other stimulus forms and qualities, and so the whole situation is confused. Now the mental level then is about the lowest we can imagine for a finite being, but it contains within itself the potentiality of unity and later of integration. If we did not have this protoplasmic background, which is really our primary feeling background, we could never learn to integrate the forms, the ideas, the patterns which stimulate the various emotions. In that case, we could never expect to educate a child beyond the level of his physical body, because his physical body would have no complexities. The information we put into it would be that information, and the content of consciousness in that being would simply be that throughout its whole self. It would be a unific being with confused information. And its physical level would be the same thing as its mental level. Now, how can it happen that a being can have a physical level different from its mental level? The answer can only be that in the process of division, one part of it may have information which the other part is deficient in. Then the whole meaning can be said to be deficient in information in one part and yet well equipped in another part. Now supposing we make this into a two-part meaning, put the extra part onto the head and the spine and the coordinate. Supposing we imagine this is a child. And this child has got to be educated. It has ears on its hands and it has eyes. We indicate certain propositions to A, and we utter a sound A. The message from the eye goes in and registers a shape. The message from the ear goes in and registers a sound. These two are registered on different cells, that's the Simeon and Levy division, but they're coordinated also. That's the Joseph line. Isn't it? Now, we can fire information in here very, very quickly if we want. But unless that information goes down into the body and is translated into physical action, the other levels of the body will not be in correspondence with the mental level. Now, it's quite easy to do this on a child. You can recite algebraic equations to a child, along with what it knows how to count up to ten. And if you persist in it, you can make a parrot recite quite complex equations 
unless started a professor of mathematics. But it doesn't mean that the parrot knows what it's doing. And in the same way, it doesn't mean that the child knows what it's doing. It's all the same whether you tell a child it's a genius, that is, you utter the word genius to a child, or teach you the alphabet. As far as the child is concerned, they are equivalent. Initially, they are quite meaningless. Later on, they're going to be a source of trouble. If you recite the word genius, you are a genius into the mind of a child without defining it, or without putting the child through the physical discipline to make sure that it is one. It will have a sentence inside it saying, I am a genius. And later on, when it comes to read some books, it will discover that a genius is a subject of great admiration in the world. So the protopathic logic will say, therefore, everybody worships me. Therefore, everybody should do as I say. Therefore, etc. And it will become central at the conceptual level. Inside here, there will be a whole complex of ideas. And yet, in fact, they're quite meaningless. That is, they cannot be translated into action by that child. We can stuff information and its formal statements into the brain of a child, and yet the child has no physical capacity to correspond to it. It's no good saying to a child born without legs, and there are such children, that you are the champion world runner. If you recite it, it will certainly recite it, and it will be recited mechanically. And later on, it will think that somehow or other it is a runner. And it will require to be treated like a world champion runner, even though it's got no legs. And this can easily happen in other people's, in less obvious cases. Any information that you put into a child's brain, and yet do not see that that child carries this information into act, is so much poison. That which is not put into action through the organism is poison. It doesn't matter how good the concept is, if it is not used, it is so much energy non-correspondent with physical performance. And in that non-correspondence there's a strain between the parts of the organism that deal with action and the other parts that deal with intellection. So if we try to educate a child beyond the level at which his body can respond to the ideas, we are really sowing the seeds of future trouble. In fact, the great increase in schizophrenia and similar disorders today is no more than an attempt to accelerate the mental content way beyond that of the body actualizing possibility. Remember we have a three-part being with prime drive, emotions and thinking. And the prime drive here is deriving its energy directly from the food and it is going to express itself in muscular physical movement and if successful in a pleasure cycle and if unsuccessful thought will begin. Now only that thought which grows out of individual failure in a physical situation is really valuable for that being. If you put information inside that head and the child has had no physical experience of the correspondence of that information, you have liberated a concept that can only do it harm. Now, if we talk about being level, 
First of all, we have defined being as rotational force, and the being level, in our terms here, is simply the level to which a being has been raised by parting it, seminally, and then coordinating the parts. So we could, if we like, make a numerical statement of balance. A being is valuable insofar as it has a large number of parts and a large number of coordinators. A being with no parts and no coordinators is the lowest level sentient being. It is a whole being which has not yet been analysed. And because it has not yet been analysed, it is confused. Now the passage is from a protopathic state of whole awareness, pre-analytic, through a state of analytic awareness, into another state of synthetic awareness, where the analyze has been synthesized. The child is protopathic in its early stages. It then, through pains and pleasures and the oppositions, is forced to bring itself into relation, and it is lucky in the state of adult development to coordinate the analyzed part of its being. Being level means the number of parts and the number of coordinators. If a man has a lot of parts and few coordinators, he's a schizophrenic. If he had a great system of coordinators and no parts, he'd really be wasting his time. Imagine a perspective thing when we insert a lot of coordinators in all over the place. What can happen? These coordinators cannot help. So being level refers both to the number of parts in the organism and to the number of coordinators. The human being is superior to animal beings because he has a greater number of parts coordinating. Not just a greater number of parts or a greater number of coordinators, but a greater number of parts coordinating. This is his superiority. Now, if we represent non-being by a translating force, we represent being by a rotating force. Now you know that Parmenides said that the universe was a finite, solid sphere and that motion was impossible. He did this because he didn't want the situation to change. Now, factually, that he bothered to speak and write about it, refuted him, because speaking and writing are changes. So, if we consider this sphere of Parmenides as established, if there is any statement coming out of it, then there must be a change occurring. Energy must be coming in if energy is going out. And the translating energy we call non-being, and this is very similar to the unbeing, the ungrunt verma, and it is this unbeing here which winds itself up to become being. Now modern philosophy, particularly existentialist philosophy, is attacking this problem now in the inverse order. They are saying that non-being is a part of being. And because of non-being, it is possible for being to live. They're not seeing that because the very concept of being is being bound, that non-being 
is really the infinite ocean of energy which itself makes being. Now, the non-being inside being and the non-being beyond being can be considered like this. Here is an energy that is not a being energy yet. It turns around and when it meets itself, it has become a being. Now, if it is still translating within the being, that is, if there are actual processes within the being, those processes are non-being. That is, they are not yet partitioned and analyzed and then synthesized and established. As long as it's moving, it is a non-being. If then it goes out again, it's going to non-being. Now, consider this fact. This is called the human dilemma today. That a human being exists as a finite, and this constitutes his being finite, but inside him are a lot of forces which are non-being. That is, they are not yet forces of rotation. Let's do him again. Here is another being, quite a different order. And this being has being inside himself. He's still got some non-being, but he has more being in him than this one. The more he can go inside like this, the more being he's making inside himself. Every time he can complete a cycle, his being is going up and his internal non-being is being conquered. Now, what is the value of knowing about being and non-being? The value is this. Remember that the paper represents this sentient power. If this power is translating, it is moving, and if it does not turn and find itself, it is a searching without any finding. So it's an objectless motion. And the psychological state of this force going along without an object is primary anxiety. That is to say, if we imagine the paper, the sentient power to vibrate, <coughs> and not to roll itself up. This tremulation on the paper is the same thing that we experience psychologically as an objectless anxiety. Now, the only way we can conquer this is by making an object so that the energy of the primary anxiety goes and turns round and meets itself and thus objectifies itself. It has then attained being of the first order. If it can then go inside himself, start to move, there's a certain amount of non-being appearing on the inside. And therefore, there appears on the inside an inner anxiety correspondent with the outer anxiety. But it's an absolute anxiety and an individual anxiety. And the difference is whether you consider outside or inside the rotation there. And when you go inside, as you are translating, you are feeling anxious. You are seeking the end. When you find the end, you have made an object and you are safe. But you can't stand still because you are power and the essence of power is to keep moving. As soon as you move again, you enter into this anxiety again. And again, you turn and seek to make an object. As soon as you made an object, the anxiety dies there, you found yourself. But again, you can't stand still, you must move. So you move in, and until you've completed your cycle, you're still in a state of anxiety. 
Now, gradually, it begins to arise internal to this being, consciously, that every time there has been anxiety, there has been a movement towards objectivity. And on the establishment of an an, uh, object upon which we can act, the anxiety is no longer anxiety. It becomes fear of the object, because the object internally is still formless. It's got to be entered into, and again, partitioned objectified on the inside. And we've said before, the power cannot go to the dead center because it's essential nature to keep moving. So it must come out again. When it's come in as far as it can and objectified itself <coughs> to its closed center, it has to leave that center and come out again. And as soon as it leaves that center, it enters again into fear. And this fear is the progressive levels of the objects that it has made. Can it get through those objects now to regain its freedom? These objects made are limitations as well as things gained. And as it runs towards the outer limit, when it gets near the outer limit of its being, it then is faced with the anxiety of non-being again. It now has to go out into infinity. And most beings are so terrified of this infinite that they would rather commit themselves to any object than face the objectless. And that is because they have a wrong concept of what the objectless non-being is. They think it's what they call nothing at all, and they think that nothing at all is just voidity, and they think that voidity is the same thing as annihilation. And all these things are untrue. They're not true concepts. Voidity simply means transcendence of form. Vacuum, empty, and so on, mean power at leisure. When we go into infinity, we've only gone back into that from which we started, and we can immediately see the possibility of daring to enter into infinity at the point that we know that's where we came from. Whatever we are, we have come from an infinite source. That infinite source has demonstrated in us that we are able to appear from the infinite into the finite existence. So that the infinite must be said to be such that it finites. It is a finitizing power. Now, that infinite, in coming in to the first big term, affirms a world. And it does so to make itself firm, so that it can act upon it and conquer its own objectlessness. But once it has made the object, it can go inside and make further objects. And every time it rotates, and establishes the rotation, it has made a being within non-being, but it's always got another non-being inside. Now we have to face this infinite fact of the inner non-being inside any being. We have to be prepared to look inside ourselves and find nothing. Because that nothing is the same thing as space. And that space is the possibility of creative movement. If we remove all the space, which actually is impossible to do, but we can try to do it with this pencil, we can keep going there like this. We're not allowed to go exactly over the line, but we can keep going inside the line. And we can go in smaller and smaller until it looks quite black. 
but really there's still space within inside every little surface. We have not totally conquered this voidity inside our being. And therefore, within inside ourselves, there are always points of anxiety. This means that inside every cell, until we become conscious of it, this anxiety exists and is driving us about. But if we become conscious of what it is, we can accept it as an eternal attribute of absolute power. And then we don't need to try to get rid of it. We just affirm that there is a primary vibration, and that, that vibration of the power cannot be eliminated. And therefore we can say, we accept this thing as a background. When we see what it does, this little vibration, is so unpleasant, it says, let us go around and firm ourselves. We'll make it permanent. This conquers this indeterminacy. And yet it leaves a zone of indeterminacy inside and outside. If we realize this as an eternal fact, then whether we are in trouble or not depends on the level of identification. We can identify with infinity, the method of oriental mystics, or we can identify with the imminent spirit here, which is the method of European mystics, since Christ said the kingdom of heaven is within, or we can identify with primitive forces, which makes us into an empirical scientist. We have three things we can do. One of them is to lose our individuality by identifying with the transcendent infinite. The other one is to ignore our objective existence, our empirical perimeter existence, and concentrate on the fact of internal initiative so that from internal initiative we can dictate to the perimeter. That's Christian individualism. The other one you could say is Buddhistic Nirvana. And between these two there is the objective mode of empirical science. Now these three are equally valid. We can make a triangle of the other one. And we could put the absolute identification of the infinite at the top. We could place the individual absorption centre there, and we could place the empirical on the other corner. And we can assert that these three are all parts of the reality of eternity time. The perimeter constitutes the time process. We can then affirm these three. We can say there is transcendent spirit, and that is space <coughs> in which planets move about. The space is not nothing. Space is force. That space is dynamically shuffling the planets about. And the planets themselves are rotations of that force, which when translated we call space. And on the inside is exactly the same spiritual power that there is transcendently, only now it is individuated by being enclosed and therefore becomes a centre of initiative. Therefore, we can have this threefold consciousness, a transcendent awareness, an objective empirical awareness, and an internal, imminent spiritual awareness. We can assert these three simultaneously. Now, in this way, we can avoid the anxiety and the fear of non-being and being simultaneously. To exist at all is to be exposed to attack. 
so that if we were merely existent and something could come along and hammer us and break us to bits, then we'd be in real danger. And we could not have much confidence in our empirical existence if that were the only existence we had. The man who is a materialist, pure and simple, tends to defend himself materially. And if a man believes in his eminent spirit, then he believes he's got an initiative centre of intelligence that can direct this empirical objective existence. And therefore he can say, I exist even if this physical perimeter is broken down. So he can then stand on his individual intelligence as a self-subsisting being, so that even if his perimeter is attacked and broken down, that with which he's identified at the centre, the imminent spirit, is an eternal. And the doctrine of the immortality of the soul arises from identification with this zone of the imminent spirit. Many times anciently there have been occasions when a man has had to make his mind up about what he's standing on. If he stood on the empirical level, he has fought at the material level. If he stands on the inner level, the immortality of the soul level, then he may not defend his physical body with physical means, because he doesn't need to, because he believes he's immortal as a self-subsisting spiritual being, a monad, veiled by matter, which can be stripped away and leave. And another method is to identify with the absolute infinite. When you identify with the absolute infinite, you cannot be said to be immortal in any individual sense. But you can say that you are substantially eternal, but then not as an individual. So if you identify with the infinite, you lose your individuality. But in so doing, you escape the objective threat of finite existence. Now, if you focus on the object, the empirical level, insofar as <coughs> you succeed in controlling it, and for the time you imagine you can control it, you have released yourself from the anxiety of facing the infinite. If you focus on the imminent spirit, and realize that imminent spirit is one with the transcendent, and that the imminent and the transcendent between themselves have created an objective world, then you can affirm the three of them. And these three, simultaneously affirmed, can remove all the fears and anxieties about existence and being and non-being. Because to be saves you from infinite annihilation. And the infinite saves you from death as an object. Remember, if we were objectified totally and did manage to eliminate space within ourselves, we would be solid. If we had <laughs> no space inside ourselves, we couldn't move inside ourselves. If there weren't any space inside, the heart couldn't beat, the blood couldn't flow, the various organs could not function. So we need this space to help us to function. And yet, if there were no objects within the space, there wouldn't be anything to function. So we have to resolve the opposition between the empirical objective world and the transcendent infinite and the imminent infinite.
intelligence. And we can do this by affirming the three of them simultaneously. Now, if we talk about education of kiddies, again, from this point of view, we can see how we can help children to keep pace physically with their growth of intelligent awareness of being and non-being. As far as a child is concerned, he is a being, and he may be in a playground with walls around to restrain him. If he doesn't like the walls of the playground restraining him, he might run out through the gates and get run over. So you can tell that child that the walls are there to protect him, and then give him an illustration. So you have skin, likewise, to protect you. And inside that skin there is blood running about. Have you ever cut yourself or seen anybody cut? Oh yes, I have. Did it hurt? Yes. Did the blood come out? Yes. Now if all the blood runs out of your body, then you will die. And in the same way, if you run out of that enclosure, you will die. If you run out prematurely. And in the same way, if the blood runs out prematurely, you will die to no avail. But whatever external restriction there is, if you indicate an internal restriction in the body of a like order, and at the same time, let the child see the virtue of the restriction, the advantage of the restriction, and then let the child operate upon it in some way. Let the child physically examine itself and its environment, and so put itself, its physical organism, into one-for-one -one correspondence with the parts of its environment. In this way, then, the internal form of the child will be the same as the form of the environment. For everything it sees in the environment and can divide, it must have a division inside its mind. So that if we look at the external world functionally and divide it functionally, and then allow the child to run about within its environment and test its own body within its environment, in the act of letting it use its body, it cannot have any insubstantial knowledge. If we let a child learn that one and one equals two, without saying what one is and one is, what two is, we've not done it a favour, really. And we see this because we will take one apple and another apple and say that those two apples together quite simply equal two apples. And it's seen immediately that this is a tautology. We're simply talking about the two apples we've got. And there's no mystery in that. Whereas in the abstract level, when you write one plus one equals two, it may or may not correspond with fact. There are certain things that go one plus one equals loud bang. And unless you've had an experiment with certain kinds of powders to show this, it would be a very, very great surprise to find that the elementary rules of arithmetic don't always produce such peaceful results. We must bring all our mental information into the physical world and look at the physical world as a world generated between the centre of initiative of the individual and the infinite power of the absolute. And we can only do this in this way, to feed an idea into the mind and to require the exercise of the body in accordance with that idea. If we do exercise the body in accordance with the idea, then the organism remains in correspondence with reality. But if we insert any idea whatever into the mind, 
and don't require the operation of its correspondent in the physical world, we've liberated an idea that is a force in the mind with no correspondence outside. And the force that's liberated on the inside and cannot find a correspondence on the outside is toxic. It can only carve into you and begin to break you up. The fact that civilized people have largely become schizophrenic is caused by this fact. Their mental level is far beyond their physical level. And if we were to take the knowledge of the next thousand years and by pressure education with modern methods of recording, sleep, indoctrination and so on, if we put all this information inside people's brains and yet they haven't physically managed to operate it, all that's happened is we've literally carved their brains into little bits. And then they have trouble because there's no correspondence between the records in the brain and their physical capacity and the physical universe outside. They can only get into serious trouble. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. Thank you.